All right, so today we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Well, um, for the past couple weeks, uh, if you've been with us, uh, we've seen, again, David involved in three different activities as king. In chapter 7, we read about him accepting God's will in regards to the Davidic covenant. In chapter 8, we saw him fighting God's battles. And there we saw several skirmishes, several battles where uh, that he won. And because of that, um, many of the surrounding kingdoms and nations became subject to him. In chapter 9... We were told how he shared God's kindness. How he shared God's kindness to Mephibosheth. And so this week in chapter 10, we'll be seeing him involved in a fourth activity. We're going to read about how he defended God's honor. And so I've titled today's message, From Kindness to Shame to War. Because once again, we see... David showing kindness to someone that he didn't really need to show kindness to and how that act of kindness was returned with a shameful act and how that led eventually to war. And so um, before we, I do read that first section, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord God, again, we're thankful that you've brought us all here together, Lord. We pray for those that are, um, that are here, Lord. I pray that you will open their eyes, their ears, their hearts, their minds to receive the message, uh, your word and the message that you uh, led me to prepare and to deliver. Pray for those watching and listening, Lord, that you will also bless them wherever they're at. And that you will also speak to them in a powerful way. Pray for new lives and new hearts. Or that they will come, that many will come to know you. So now, Lord, I pray that you will keep us safe as we uh, dedicate this time to you, Lord. And, and again, show us things that we need to know and the truths that you want to show us, Lord. Use me as your instrument, as your tool, and to again, speak without, to speak boldly. Thank you again for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 10. And the word of God says, Sometime later, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanan concerning his uh, father. However, when they arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leaders said to Hanan, 
their Lord, just because David has sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries in order to scout out the city, spy on it, and demolish it? So Hanan took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. When this was reported to David, he sent someone to meet them, since they were deeply, deeply humiliated. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, then return. Well, just as we saw him do in a previous chapter with Mephibosheth, David now wants to show kindness to a grieving son who had just lost his father, who had just lost a father, and to a nation who had lost a king. However, his sincere gesture of sympathy, respect, and peace was misunderstood. And he was basically given a slap in the face in return. This disrespectful act couldn't be ignored. And so David now finds himself in a situation where he must defend his own honor as well as the honor of the Lord and his people. And so let's look at these first five verses a little bit more closely. The first five verses of chapter 10 were told about the public offense that would ultimately lead to the events of the rest of this chapter. As I mentioned last week, one aspect that would define how well David would lead his people would be in his ability to develop and maintain international relationships, to be a diplomat, and to be good at the negotiating table. Now, back in chapter 8, we read how David had brought many of the surrounding nations under tribute to Israel. Included in these nations was Ammon, a kingdom east of the Jordan River, and, well, along with many others. Since Saul's early years, Ammon had been ruled by Nahash. In fact, when we covered 1 Samuel chapter 1, it was Nahash who had attacked Jabesh Gilead when Saul first became king and had been defeated by Saul. Well, apparently he had done David a favor and showed him some kindness at one time. And, or he might have helped him when he was a fugitive. And as a result of that kind act, there was now a mutual respect among these two kings or among these two leaders. And uh, that lasted throughout their lifetimes. And so when Nahash died and his son Hanan become, became king, David now wanted to show kindness 
The same kindness, again, that he showed Mephibosheth. He wanted to show that kindness to the new king. In the same way, just as his father had showed kindness to him at one time. So what David did was he sent a delegation of emissaries, of diplomats, of, of basically ambassadors to console Hanan, to show their respect, and to show him that he still wanted to maintain good relations with that nation. But Hunan had surrounded himself with just some really dumb people, some really bad advisors that you know, just didn't had their own self-interest in mind. And as a result, immaturity and ignorance triumphed over wisdom and common sense. See, they told David, they, to, they, they told him that David wasn't really showing respect, but was rather sending a team out there to scout out the city and uh, to demolish it, in order to demolish it. Well, the inexperienced new king believed the conspiracy theories. And when the team arrived, he accused them of being spies. And so what he did was he publicly humiliated, humiliated them um, by sending them away with half a beard and half naked, naked from the waist down. Now, in our culture, there are certain rules that men adhere to that are commonly referred to as man codes. And one of them is that no guy is supposed to mess around with another guy's facial hair. Yeah, that, you know, it's okay for your wife to do it, your girl to do it, whatnot, or your kid to do it. But for another man to, to start playing with another man's facial hair, it's, yeah, it, it doesn't fly. In our, just in our culture. Um, it's weird. And it's just wrong, in my opinion, my personal opinion. However, this is especially true in the Jewish culture. See, it's disrespectful for anyone to tamper with a Jewish man's beard. And so by shaving half of it, and then, you know, they also pride themselves in, in, in being modest people. And so by forcing them to walk all the way back to Jerusalem, completely, well, naked from the waist down, was an egregious insult. Well, when King David heard about this, he sent someone to meet them and to protect their dignity. He told them, you know what? Don't worry about coming back to Jerusalem. Stay in Jericho until your beards grow back. 
you know, he was really thinking about them and didn't want them to be a distraction. And so he did that, and but David wasn't happy at all about what Hanan had done. Hanan's mistreatment of David's servants wasn't just shameful to the men personally, but as I mentioned in the beginning, it was basically a slap in the face to David, as well as to the nation that they represented. Now, in this first section, I want to just quickly just mention that this is a good reminder that as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, many times your own acts of kindness will sometimes be met with suspicion, rejection, and ridicule. You may just want to be show a kind act to somebody and to a friend or to a neighbor, to a stranger, and they may not want it. They may laugh at you and they may reject you and they may see you like you have something in mind or that you have ill intentions. But if you have the love of Christ in you, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you know that's, that's not the case. It's not the case because you know about Christ's love and his love fills you and you just want it. It's just give it to others. It's an, it's an overflow of the love of Christ, of the, of the Holy Spirit that you're doing, that you're doing these acts of kindness. And so a lot of people aren't going to understand, or a lot of people aren't going to get it because they don't know Christ. They don't know about his love. And so, yeah, there will be times when you will be seen with suspicion. You will be rejected and told, you know what, just get out of here. I don't want anything that you're offering. And you may be laughed at. Oh, you're one of them Christians. You're one of them people. Well, I don't want any of your help. They may say, this happens. Keep in mind again that they just don't know. They don't get it. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep showing that kindness. Don't give up. Don't just stop, you know, just because you've been laughed at, just because you've been rejected once, twice, maybe ten times. Keep doing it. Keep showing that kindness. It honors Christ. And again, you're just showing people the love of, love of God. And he ultimately gets the glory. He, he knows your heart and he knows the intentions behind it, behind it and he honors that. He gets all the glory in the end. And so as we now move on to the next section, we're going to see how this shameful act led to one to the first of two battles that took place. 
So now let's pick up in verse 6 in 2 Samuel chapter 10. When the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David, they hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Arameans of Beth, Rehob, and, and Zobah, 1,000 men from the king of Maka, and 12,000 men from Tob. David heard about it and sent Joab and all the elite troops. The Ammonites marched out and lined up in battle formation at the entrance to the city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob had the, and the men of Tob and Maka were in the field by themselves. When Joab saw that there was a battle line in front of him and another behind him, he chose some men of Israel's finest, some of Israel's finest young men and lined up in formation to engage the Arameans. He placed the rest of the forces under the command of his brother Abishai. They lined up in formation to engage to engage the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you will be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come and help you. Be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Joab and his troops advanced to fight against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, they too fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab withdrew from the attack against the Ammonites and went to Jerusalem. Now, it, it says right there in the beginning, right there in verse 6, that when the Ammonites realized that they had become repulsive. Now, this word repulsive, uh, many commentators, many people have said that it's basically they became like a, a stench, a really foul smell, like the worst smell that you can imagine. Um, that's what they became to David's nostrils. They just were like repulsive to him. Well, they, the Ammonites, hired a total of 33,000 mercenary troops from the three Aramean kingdoms of Bethroab and Zobah, Bethroab and Zobah, Maka and Tob, in order to prepare for war. He knew it was coming. He knew it was, it was just a matter of time. And so he had to get his troops together. Meanwhile, David sent his commander, Joab, and his elite troops, or his mighty men, to confront them. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because it's important to understand that David really was nothing without his mighty men. And they were nothing without him. He was their leader. But a leader is nothing without followers. And David had an army of the mighty men to follow him. 
These men didn't necessarily start off as mighty men. 1 Samuel chapter 22 says that many of them were distressed, indebted, and discontented people who followed David to the Adullam cave. These were the outcasts of society. These were the people that the, the high and mighty, the rich and powerful just didn't want. These were the people that, you know, just were rejected by the elite. Now among them was Adino, the Esnite, who we'll read about when we get to chapter 23. But he was made famous for killing 800 men at one time. Another was Jashabim, who First Chronicles chapter 11 says killed uh, 300 men at one time. And yet another was Benaniah, who killed a lion on a snowy day and killed a huge Egyptian warrior with his own spear. And that story is also in First Chronicles chapter 11. And so again, he was surrounded by really strong, mighty men. He couldn't have done it by himself. At the same time, these men couldn't have done it without David's leadership. But before the battle be, uh, began, General Joab came up with a plan to divide his army into two groups. One would be led by him to engage the Arameans, and the other group would be led by his brother Abishai to engage the Ammonites. Both of them then agreed that they would help each other out if they needed it. And so once this plan was finalized, once they came up with a game plan, verse 12 records one of the most motivating statements to the army on faith and patriotism by this general, by their commander, Joab, which was this, be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Now in this statement here, Joab made three great points. In the New King James Version, uh, verse 12 reads, Be a good courage, be of good courage, and let us be strong. Ladies and gentlemen, courage and strength aren't matters of feeling and circumstance. They are matters of choice, especially when God makes his strength available to us. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. The second point he made was, 
let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. Joab here was reminding all of them, regardless of who they were, regardless of their rank or their position or what their role was, that they all had something to lose. If they lost this battle, they would lose both their people and their cities. See, he was making them see that this battle was bigger than themselves. And that army of mighty men needed to remember that. They needed to have that in the forefront of their minds as they went out to fight. They were fighting for God. They were fighting for country. They would lose everything if they lost. And the third point he made was, may the Lord's will be done. Joab wisely prepared for the battle to the best of his ability and worked hard to ensure that he would get the victory. But he was well aware that the outcome was ultimately in God's hands. And see, the lesson here is you can do everything you possibly can to plan and prepare for any situation. You know, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you know, plan for the best and prepare for the worst. Well, you can plan for a tornado, you can plan for, you know, natural disaster, you can plan for an alien invasion. I don't know. I'm just, you know, you can plan for the worst. You can plan for Armageddon. But never forget, if you're a believer again, if you're truly a child of God, never forget that God is in control. He's the one who has everything in the palm of his hand. In Isaiah 14:24, God swore this earth, this oath, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned it, so it will happen. You can't do anything to thwart God's plans. What God has in store, you can prepare. You can be a prepper and have everything available to you. You can have a underground bunker. But who's to say that you know, you're not going to die tomorrow? All that work, all that preparation would be for nothing. All that money you put into it would be for nothing. All that preparation. Be for... It's good. Don't get me wrong. It's good to plan and prepare. Be ready case something bad happens but rather than when that happens 
and plans come finally come to fruition. Don't stress about it. Don't worry about it. God's in control. Remember that. So maybe right now you're dealing with something. Maybe right now that you're thinking something's you, you can see or you know about something that's coming up and stressing out about it. And yeah, you may have planned for it and you may have prepared for it and keep in mind. Yeah, well, yeah, have that peace. Have that peace that God is in control of every situation. He, yeah, you remember when Jesus was on the boat, what, what Jesus was doing was on the boat, on the boat while there was a storm going on and the disciples were worried about their lives. They thought they were going to die. What was Jesus doing? He was sleeping on the lower deck of the boat. And when they woke him up and they were like, don't you care if we're going to die? He's like, oh, you know, guys, I'm paraphrasing here. Guys, come on. And so he calmed the storm. One way or another, he will calm your storm. But trust in him. Trust that he will do that for you and just have that peace. And so with those final words from Joab, both Joab and Abishai led their men out to battle. But then the unexpected happened. Verse 13 says that as soon as Joab and his group of men advanced to fight the, the Arameans, they retreated. And when the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, verse 14 says that they also retreated before Abishai's men got to them. Now aside from the fact that this was now a clear and decisive victory for Israel. What's also amazing about this particular battle was that there were zero casualties. We, were, you know, we weren't told here or in First Chronicles where the story is retold. That there were any deaths in this first battle. It was just boo and they... They got scared and fled. It's amazing. I guess they were just so hyped up from Joab's speech that the mere sight of those group, those mighty men, scared the heck out of them. They're like, no, we don't want none of this. So they booked it and just fled and just left. The second section that we just read here shows us, well, one of the things I want, that it shows us is the importance of leadership. Everyone here, everyone in that room, those young men and women, they all have the potential. If they're not leaders already, if you're not leaders already, they all, you all have the potential of being great leaders. And in, our, in this particular story, in this section here, Joab is the main character, but 
every leader must first learn how to follow. Joab didn't begin, start off as a general commanding Israel's army. No, he was, he started off as a boot like everybody else. He had to scrub floors and had to throw out trash and had to, had to burn feces. I had to do that when I was in Iraq. Burn, burn it. But, uh, but yeah, he had to do all that stuff. And he learned, over time, he learned how to lead. God strengthened him, but he was also observant. He saw great leaders. He saw David and his heart, and he was attracted to that. And he was like, yeah, that's who I want to be like. I want to be led by him, and I want to be a leader like him. So Joab, again, probably just quickly rose up in the ranks and became a great leader. And so, you know, in the same way, everyone starts off somewhere. God will give you the strength to lead. If you feel like you can't and you don't, you're just, there's no way you'd rather just be a follower. Yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But there will come a point where you will be asked to lead. Don't run away from it. Don't shy away from it. Take that responsibility and, and use it to again glorify God, to honor the Lord, to be wise, to make wise decisions and ask questions, learn from those who have led or who are leaders. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed to ask questions. No, there isn't a perfect leader out there who, and just, they, they don't know everything. So, again, you want to be a good leader, ask questions, plan. I talked about this earlier, but there's nothing wrong with planning. Just as Joab got together with his brother and probably some of his other military leaders, they planned. He planned how they would, going to, Attack the enemy. And the lesson here is don't go into a spiritual battle without a plan. Don't think you could just walk into a situation where you're going to be spiritually attacked without being spiritually ready, without having the tools to confront that attack, to defend yourself and to go on an offensive. The Lord will guide you. He will lead you. And he will strengthen you in those spiritual battles. Also, we see here that leaders... Motivate. A good leader will motivate his troops. A good leader here like Joab will inspire hope. 
will inspire faith, will inspire men, mighty men and women to, to go out and get it done for the Lord. See, even when things seem hopeless, even when things may seem like they're not going to go well, to be a good leader, motivate people by giving them hope and exemplifying faith. Also, good leaders know how to execute well. They know how to get it done, as I said. I'm not going to be afraid to go out and just do what needs to be done. Go out there. Don't be scared. Don't be ashamed. Don't be worried. Act boldly, unashamedly. Don't worry about what others are going to say, what others are going to think. You're honoring, Lord. You're honoring by what you're saying, what you're doing, by sharing Christ or by showing kindness, the love of Christ to others. You are honoring the Lord. So again, give people hope. Share the hope that is in you. And the best way to show people what faith is is by exemplifying it, by living it out in your own lives. Wherever you go, Whatever you do, when you execute, the Lord will be with you. So now, as we get into this last section of this chapter, we're going to read how unlike the first battle, this second battle was a bloody one. So let's pick up where we left off in... Second Simon chapter 10, and we're going to be reading from verse 15. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer sent messengers to bring the Arameans who were beyond the Euphrates, who were beyond the Euphrates River, and they came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army leading them. When this was reported to David, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. Then the Arameans lined up to engage David in battle and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of the charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, commander of their army who died there. When all the kings who were Adadezer's subjects saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became their subjects. After this, the Arabians were afraid to ever help the Ammonites again. Now, 
here in this section, it appears that the Ammonites had learned their lesson since they're not really mentioned here until the end. But the Arameans here are, and it seems they just couldn't get over the fact that they had just lost to David, had just been defeated by Israel. <clears throat> so once they regrouped, headed Ezer. Now, if that name sounds familiar, he was first mentioned in back in chapter 8. And he had already been defeated by David. So he was subject, basically him and, and the nation were subject to David. But, I don't know, he now had couldn't get over the fact that, over that fact. So he, um, what he did is recalled the remaining Aramean forces and anybody who was their allies beyond, who were beyond the Euphrates River in order to fight Israel. Under the command of Shobak, this newly reinforced army took up positions at Helam. When David heard about this, when this was reported to David, he realized that this battle was just way too important for him just to sit out like he did in the first battle. He knew that this was make or break battle and he decided that he would personally command his army at Helam himself personally there out in the field. Unlike the previous battle though, this time, both armies actually engage with one another. This, the, you could hear, you could probably hear the, the, the clanging of steel, swords, and death all over that field. People dying all over that field. It was a bloody battle. It was a fierce battle. And after the dust settled... David again found himself victorious. His army had killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. And their general, General Shobak, was among the dead on the battlefield. Well, this broke the back of the Aramean resistance and and brought the Aramean confederates under Israel's domination. Never again did they side with Ammon against the people of Israel. The result, the result of these conflicts, of these wars in chapter 8, and, and these wars and these battles that we saw here, is that now peace was being established on David's terms. This meant that David was free to dictate what that peace would look like. And everyone else had no choice but to submit to his ways. He wasn't a, a difficult man. He wasn't a hard man. He saw here that he's compassionate. He's kind. 
but peace was now going to be dictated. How that peace was going to look like, what it was going to be like, would be dictated by David. And so now, what we see up to this point is that David's power, reputation, and territory are fully intact. This chapter showed us that David indeed was a man of war and fought the battles of the Lord. And the Lord was with him to give him victory. He extended the Israelite empire to the river of Egypt on the south, to the Euphrates River on the north. And on the east, he conquered Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And on the north, he defeated the Arameans and the Syrians, including Hamath. Because of God's gifts and help, David undoubtedly became Israel's greatest king and greatest military genius. But as I, again, as I mentioned before, he was also blessed to have courageous men like Joab and Abishai and all his mighty men to surround him and to be with him and to help him. This chapter also prepares us for what lies ahead, for the sad events that we will look at next week when we get to chapters 11 and 12. See, this chapter ends with unfinished business at Robah. The offending Ammonites went there to again to rest and and it was their city while Joab returned to Jerusalem. We're going to find out later in the spring, David sent Joab and the army to go out to to, to deal with uh, Rabbah as he waited, as he himself waited in Jerusalem. And while he waited there in his palace, there he fell into sin with Bathsheba. And we all know about David's sin with, with her, with Bathsheba, and how it happened, and that, how it, and that it happened when David waited in Jerusalem, when you really should have been out there leading the battle at Rabbah. At Rabbah. 2 Samuel chapter 10 shows that God gave David a warning by showing it necessary for him to go out and fight against the Arameans. David tried to leave the battle with Joab and David tried to leave the battle with Joab in 2 Samuel chapter 10, but his army needed him. And God tried to show him. And God tried to show him that by blessing, uh, that bless, by, by blessing, well, let me repeat that. David tried to leave the battle to Joab, but his people needed him. 
And God tried to show him that the blessing of what it meant to to go out into battle. So in the end, Second Samuel chapter ten was God's gracious warning that David sadly wasted. And one of the things also that we see here, as I well, as I said, you know, was David showed kindness that led to shame, which eventually led to war. This also shows us that one other person showed kindness, but he was treated shamefully. And as a result, those that don't know him are now, are now basically at war with him. That person is Jesus Christ. Yes, if you're out there and aren't a believer and haven't you given your life over to Christ, you are at war with him. You're not, you don't know him. You're constantly, you're in a struggle. A struggle that you're not going to be able to win. And eventually, in the long run, you will submit and you will bow the knee or you will bend the knee to, to Christ. Let me tell you this, that it's better to surrender now than later when you're facing him at his judgment, at his throne of, of judgment. He showed you kindness. He is showing you kindness. But the ultimate kindness that he showed was by dying on the cross for all your sins. He lived his life and did nothing wrong. He was innocent while you, the sinner, were guilty. It should have been you. It should have been us on that cross, but it was him. And he did that because he didn't want you. He doesn't want you to suffer the eternal punishment that awaits those that don't believe. That punishment is torment of hell. He was treated shamefully. He was kind and loving, but he was treated shamefully. And so now, again, he is, he's still treated shamefully. Do you remember, if you're a believer, do you remember at those times when, as an unbeliever, when you ridiculed the name of Jesus? When you scoffed and laughed? When you heard about Jesus? When anyone approached you and wanted to tell you about the love of Christ, what Christ did for you on the cross? I do. I remember how, as a young man, I laughed at these men and women who were passing out tracks. I mean, I was a pretty bad 
kid. I'm going to get all into it, but... Yeah, I think in one way or another, all of us have treated Christ's messengers shamefully. But he himself was treated that way. He was beaten, struck, he was spat at, his beard was pulled. He was mocked there on the cross. And yet, he still loved you through all that. And so, if you need, if you see your need for a Savior, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, I want to invite you to the cross and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to give you, to make you born again, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. So if that's what you'd like to do, if you're watching, listening to this, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And with all your heart, again, with sincerity, if you're not sincere, this isn't a a free ticket to get out of jail. The Lord knows your heart and so if you're ready to, to, if you're really sincere about this, I want to lead you in your prayer to receive Christ. So pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I admit there's nothing good in me that I've treated you shamefully. I treated your sacrifice with contempt. I laughed at your image on the cross. But uh, you know, Lord, about all the other shameful things, all the sins that I've committed. And so I ask you now to forgive me of those sins. Forgive me of all the ways I treated you shamefully. I now believe that you died for my sins and that three days later you rose from the grave. And so I repent of my sins now, Lord. I turn back from them and, and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I accept your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for saving me. So now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me, teach me, show me what it means, what your word means, what this new life means as a born-again believer. In your name, I pray this. Amen. If you prayed that, I want to welcome you to the family of God. There's a celebration in heaven right now. A new sinner has repented and a new sinner has, or a new 
believer has come to believe in Christ. So let us know about it. I want to hear from you. Maybe guide you in your next steps. If you're here locally, we want to invite you to the corner of Hondo Pass and Gateway, Gateway South. Small little church there in a little strip mall called Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel. Thank you again for joining us. We hope that you have a blessed uh, week. We look forward to seeing you and to, again, as you join us as we continue our study here. So for now, goodbye and farewell.